Mud Stories, Episode 52. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. And there was a period of time where I thought, If this is what God's going to be like, I don't want any part of him. Because he felt very unsafe. You know, it felt very, the unpredictable nature of God, the sovereignty of God seemed very frightening to me. I could not control him. I could not get him to do what I wanted him to do. And as a 27-year-old, that was a frightening thing, especially for a type A person who's always pretty much been in control of her life. And thank heavens I had been given the opportunity to go through that dark season of not knowing if I wanted to believe in God and choosing to believe in Him and choosing to come to Him and say, I don't always understand you, but I need you more than I need to understand. Because that ends up becoming my foundation for getting through a more difficult, more dangerous storm. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories, a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are not alone. Hey friends, welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. I'm so glad to be back with you this week. And if this is your first time joining me, I just want to extend a huge warm welcome to you. I'm so glad you're here. So today, Michelle Couchat is here to share with us her undone story of suffering and how she has met the obstacles of an unexpected life. Some of you may know Michelle from her online work. She has been the co-host of Michael Hyatt's podcast, This Is Your Life. She's also served as the MC for Women of Faith, and she is a popular speaker and speaking coach who resides in Colorado with her husband and six beautiful children. It really is a miracle that Michelle can even talk at all, given what she's faced this last year. And she shares today with such transparency and openness and vulnerability, the lessons that she's learned in and through suffering and the unexpected things she's faced. To me, Michelle is a special friend who I have interacted with for the last three years through online things, texting, Instagram, and connecting in person as well. And I have just patiently been waiting for her to be able to record a podcast episode with us here. And so we were able to get together last week and talk, and I can't be more thankful for her and her message. And I am confident that whatever you're facing today, no matter what it is, no matter what unexpected event, because we all have something unexpected that happens to us throughout life. And oftentimes these unexpected things cause so very much pain. And it's really hard to do the everyday things as we're grieving or suffering or in pain. And that's what this podcast is all about. I want you to hear these muddy gunky stories so that you can know how God has met others in their pain and that you can be confident and reassured to believe that God will indeed meet you right where you are and he will redeem all things for good in his time. And so today I'm praying that Michelle's message and her words would inspire you and encourage you 
and give you hope where you may not have had any hope. And if everything's going great for you, I think there's a lot she can offer in this conversation as well to give you the insight that you need to help someone else around you that's suffering. And don't forget to receive the show notes for this episode, including some of the key phrases and nuggets of wisdom that Michelle shares. You can text the words episode 52 with no spaces to the number 33444. And you just reply to the instructions that are texted to you and that uh, PDF will be sent directly to your email totally free. And I hope that blesses you. And so without further delay, here is my conversation with Michelle Couchat. Enjoy. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. I am not sure I can be more thankful that you're here. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you, Jackie. I'm glad to be here. Well, you mean so much to me because three years ago, I was writing my own very messy, muddy, undone story on my blog, and I dared to hit publish on a series of what I'd gone through. And out of the blue, you sent me a message cheering me on, letting me know that you were reading and that you were so supportive. And, you know, that meant so much to me. And since then, we kind of developed an online friendship and messages back and forth. And, and I just, you extended an offer of friendship to me that I've not forgotten. And I'm just so, so thankful for who you are. Oh, that's so, I mean, to me, I hear that. And I'm like, that's just a total God thing. Cause I feel like I've been the recipient of the gift. Well, that's two of us then. We both got a <laughs> gift. How about that? Nice. Well, I was so excited to finally meet you at Women of Faith in Anaheim last September, and we got to hug and chat a little bit, and we talked about you coming on my podcast, which I was so excited about, but then a few weeks after that, you experienced another unexpected turn in your story, which delayed your ability to join me, and I've just been patiently waiting for you and praying for you, and so um, I'm so glad you're here. I feel like we have so much in common. So much. I, I totally agree. And I can't believe it's now been uh, probably going on nine months since we saw each other at uh, Women of Faith. I <laughs> so know. For being very patient. Oh, well, it's my privilege. Well, is, has today been a good day? I know it's summer. Kids are home. Um, I, my kids are in a theater arts camp this week, so that's been really fun uh, for them to experience that. But, you know, it's different. It's a different pace when kids are home, right? Oh, a completely different pace. And uh, and today, I could say, is a complicated day. I have three semi-sick kiddos. They're not like 100% under the weather, but they're not feeling really great. And I've had kind of a, a poor health day myself, which is to be expected. So it's been, yeah, it's been an interesting summer day today because we've all been inside commiserating together. <laughs> Oh, that is that. Those are hard days, sick days like that. Real life, right? Real life, real life mess. Well, I'd love it if you would take just a moment to introduce everybody, if they don't know who you are, to introduce us to you and your family and a little peek into what you were doing in life before this unexpected turn last fall. All right. Well, uh, I am married to Troy. Uh, we've been married for almost 15 years. We have th- uh, six kids, uh, and I'll give you their ages. Which, th- as soon as I give you their ages, you'll know there's a story behind the story. But my <laughs> kids, ages 23, 21, 18, all three of those are boys, 
Then I have a nine-year-old girl and then eight-year-old twins, a boy and a girl. So we, we go from 23 all the way down to eight-year-old twins. Never a dull moment, Miss Michelle. Never a dull moment. <laughs> so both my husband and I had, um, we had been married before. We had unexpected divorces that were very devastating when our boys were young. He had two boys. I had one. And when our boys were four, seven, and nine, we married each other and went through all the uh, fun complications of blended family, which mm. is so exciting. <laughs> I say that. I can relate fun. to that. Yes. Yeah, so complicated and pushed through, defied the odds, you know, made it work. Um, and we were just at the verge of uh, being done with parenting. Two of our boys were out of high school. The third one was getting ready to drive. And um, eight weeks after our second son graduated from high school, we got a phone call asking us if um, we would take in three children. The mom could no longer care for them. They were twin four-year-olds and a five-year-old. And so the question was asked of us, will you take them? So that pretty much rocked our world in a significant way. And we'll get into more of that later. But 24 hours later, we drove, we picked them up. And overnight, we became the parents of six kids instead of three, which is how we end up where we are today. Wow. And you and your husband were both working, right? Yes. I think our husbands are both contractors. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're both, my husband and I are both entrepreneurs. He's a general contractor. He does a lot of custom remodeling projects, basement finishing, uh, all that kind of stuff. He does beautiful work. My house is amazing because of him. And, uh, and then I have my own business as a writer and a speaker and a speaking coach. So both of us had our own businesses and they started to take out just about the time we were supposed to be empty nesters. So adding three more children into the mix didn't just kind of upset the fruit basket or our family, but it kind of changed all the dynamics related to both of us being business people and how we're going to go forward with parenting all over again. What a challenge. What a challenge. And not just parenting all over again, but the unique challenges that you faced with the three littles that came to be with you. Exactly. Can you share some of that undoneness, yeah. <laughs> that unexpected experience, right? Yes. Well, you know, anytime that children, you know, the age four and five change families, move from one household to another, it's almost always related to some kind of traumatic experience. And, mm -hmm. and that was the case with my kids. It's not necessarily important, the details, but the mom had uh, an addictive history and it just was in a, a place where she literally could not care for them because she uh, could barely care for herself. So having them come to our house was the right decision and the healthy and safe decision for them. But you can't take three kids from mom and not have uh, some trauma and some loss and grief and challenges from that. And in addition to that, they had had other trauma in their history, in their past, that just created um, kids that came with a lot of wounds, a lot of brokenness. And, uh, and so when you're four and five-year-old and you've gone through you know, horrific loss and pain and trauma... Uh, you can't process through that verbally. So it ends up being expressed in emotional outbursts and regressive behavior and difficulty in social situations and speech and language delays and all that kind of stuff. So, 
Yeah, so we not only found ourselves parenting again, but needing to parent a completely different way in order to uh, help to bring some healing and wholeness to our kids that had gone through so much pain. I, I just reflect on the marvelousness of them coming to your house because the timing of it was so crazy after your you know, first, was it your first diagnosis they came after that? Yeah, so eight months before the kids came, I had gotten the bad news from a doctor uh, that I had been diagnosed with cancer, cancer of the tongue, which is why I talk a little bit funny right now, but uh, cancer of the tongue. And so in the eight months before they came, of course, we had no idea we were going to be taking in children. Right. Yeah, we were just living our life. But I was going through surgery and recovery and all kinds of doctor's appointments and craziness going on. So so that happened first. So here we are with three boys. I'm a 39-year-old mom going through cancer very unexpectedly, uh, a rare cancer that is usually associated with smokers. Uh, and so that baffled me since I'd never used tobacco in my life. I was a former nurse. I exercise regularly, I eat healthy, so it made no sense. So here we were still wrestling with cancer and the unknowns related to cancer and recovery related to cancer, and then the three kids come in the middle of that. Talk about an unexpected life. <laughs> unexpected yeah, indeed. Yeah, it really it really is. And when you know when we are in a, a short conversation, we lay it all out. It's mm-hmm. so you know, it's one thing after another, pretty significant crises and traumas. So yeah, I mean, after a while, you start to feel like you're just getting uh, beat up. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think after reading your book, Undone, actually, I didn't read it. I listened to you read it to me. Oh, oh, I loved it. I took a trip to my parents' house, which is about four hours away and all the way there and all the way back, back when it was released in the spring, I listened to you read it to me. And I love to listen to authors read their own books. It's just, it's a glimpse into the intention of the words that they've written that is a unique perspective. I feel like the intonations and the way they read it, I just far prefer hearing them read it than reading it, you know, on the page. Unless then I want to underline things. So then I seem to find the need that I need both. <laughs> it's kind of a, <laughs> it's kind of a difficult habit I have going. <laughs> So, um, but listening to you read your story, it was, I just, I wept at the depth of suffering, Michelle. And it just, I mean, I know we didn't start at the very beginning in a chronological order, but just the whole, I could relate to so much of it. I'm also a type A perfectionist, you know, who thought that if I did everything according to God's plan and followed God's word, that there wouldn't be problems and, and married young and was young in ministry and became a nurse like you. And then that first unexpected crisis, that first turn that we both share, which was divorce, um, something I think neither one of us really intended or realized would happen in our lives, both for different reasons, but, um, what about that first crisis prepared you for this moment when post-cancer, post-treatment, three littles come to live in your home? Oh, I, 
first of all, that's such a great question, a very wise question, which comes from your experience, I have no doubt. Uh, that first crisis, uh, finding myself 27 years old, going, you know, going through a divorce with a one-and-a-half-year-old son, uh, that was my first, first uh, experience with in my mind, God not behaving like I expected him to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which sounds so, you know, even arrogant saying, but yet we still, we have that. We have this kind of gut feeling that if I do everything right, mm-hmm. and if I read my Bible and I love God, that he should behave according to how we expect him to. And so, you know, starting very, very young as a young woman, I started praying for my husband someday. I mean, this is back when I was probably in grade school or junior high, I started praying for the man I would one day marry. So when I found myself going through a divorce at 27, uh, after being in ministry for several years, it seems like a slap in the face from God himself. If I can pray for that many years, a good prayer. I mean, it's not like I was praying to win the lottery. I was praying (laughs) for a godly husband and a good marriage and to be able to serve God within our marriage. So it was a good prayer. So if I could pray for that for so long and so faithfully and end up in this mess, this mess of a divorce and um, with a child that would go through the same pain and loss, uh, it just seemed like such a huge slap in the face from God. And so for a couple of years, I really wrestled with what I believed about him. And there was a period of time where I thought, if this is what God's going to be like, I don't want any part of him because he felt very unsafe. You know, it felt very, the unpredictable nature of God, the sovereignty of God seemed very frightening to me because he, I could not control him. I could not get him to do what I wanted him to do. And as a 27-year-old, that was a frightening thing, especially for a type A person who's always pretty much been in control of her life. <laughs> uh, then fast forward to, uh, you know, fast forward another, what, 13 years mm-hmm. to um, 39 and 40 when I'm a mother of uh, three boys, two stepsons, a biological son. Uh, I go through cancer and I take in three kids. The, although I had moments of struggle and moments of questioning and doubt and all of that, which always comes with crisis, I mean, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be surprised by that. The wrestling I had done with the sovereignty of God back in my 20s really became the cement under my feet during this greater upheaval. Uh, It was hard for me to imagine anything more devastating than a divorce. But actually, as it turns out, cancer and, you know, parenting three more kids (laughs) is even more a bigger upheaval. And thank heavens I had been given the opportunity to go through that dark season of not knowing if I wanted to believe in God and choosing to believe in him and choosing to come to him and say, I don't always understand you, but I need you more than I need to understand. Because that ended up becoming my foundation for getting through a more difficult, more dangerous storm. Hmm. Well, let's talk about that, that more difficult, dangerous storm, because after you began parenting three new little ones. As cute as they were, you still had challenges that you faced with them adjusting and accommodating to a new family, as well as shifts in your career, changes in your health, and then another diagnosis. Yes. 
So, so we get through the first diagnosis. We get through the first year with the three kids, which was the hardest year of adjustment by far. I mean, just massive adjustment when your family almost doubles in size. It's massive. And then in 2014, you know, we think maybe we're getting over the hump. We're getting ready for my youngest of my oldest kids to graduate from high school and all of that. And uh, in February of 2014, I find another lump inside my mouth on my tongue. I was almost, I was, I was um, going on four years cancer-free at that point. I was about three. Wow. And, yeah, which is a long time. And so uh, in February, found this lump, and I just knew. I just had that gut feeling. Mm. Sure enough, the doctor did a biopsy, and the cancer had come back. Uh, bigger and uh, a little bit more difficult this time. So I went through another surgery in March of 2014. And that surgery removed one third of my tongue, used a skin a biological graft to rebuild it. And then after that surgery, the doctors weren't sure, you know, they couldn't decide whether to do treatment or not. So they left the decision up to me, which is not fun, by the way, when you have to make those big life-altering decisions. At that point, I decided to wait for doing chemo and radiation uh, because the doctors were really torn on whether or not it was worth the permanent side effects, and so we were kind of weighing that. Uh, and so I was very optimistic at that point that they had gotten it all. The doctor was very optimistic that she had gotten it all, and so I went back through recovery, spent several months recovering from that surgery. And it wasn't long after that, it was uh, November of 2014, that I found yet another lump and it had come back for a third time. And this time it was so aggressive, so much more advanced that I didn't have any choice. We had to dive into very aggressive treatment, very aggressive surgery where they took out two thirds of my tongue. And then within just a few weeks of that surgery, they started me on in very intense chemo and radiation that lasted for about three months. And that was just this last fall after I saw you. Yes, it started in November. I just finished treatment in February. Uh, and so from March till now, four months, it's only been four months, I've been just mm -hmm. working to basically get my life back. Um, they really took me to the brink of death this time. So when I say uh, it's been brutal trying to recover, I mean, I, it's really been <laughs> brutal. Oh, I've gone through surgeries to remove part of my tongue and nothing could prepare me for what it was like going through that, that treatment and recovery process. Yeah. As a nurse, I can remember being in uh, my surgical rotation and uh, Loma Linda University, where near where I live, has a whole floor dedicated to head and neck surgery and treatment and um, the things that people have to endure in that area of treatment are just, I don't even have a word to describe it. It's heinous. I'll give you the heinous, word. ruthless. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know this before, but after going through this and talking to multiple doctors and nurses, they've all told me that head and neck mm. um, cancer and treatment is really like worst of the worst. Yeah, and I think it's because it alters so much of our ability to communicate and to eat, and you know, our appearance. Um, our relationships, it's its just, it hits an area of the body that's very public, don't you think? Very public and very intimate. 
you know, very tender and intimate. Mm -hmm. So uh, it really goes at you with the core of who you are. Yeah, it's a miracle you're even able to talk to me today. I mean, that you're, I mean, your speech is, I can tell a little bit, but it's not really drastic. I'm sure for you it is, but to me, I'm just thrilled to hear your voice. Oh, thank you. Yeah, to me, yeah, the funny thing is in my head, it sounds differently than it sounds to other people. Mm. So when I listen to myself talking on an interview, uh, it doesn't sound as bad to me when I listen to myself versus when I'm talking and hear it in my own head. So interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's just kind of, I, I think that's part of the anatomy. They rebuilt my tongue with tissue from my arm and my leg. And so, uh, so my voice is now further back in my throat. So it just sounds different from inside me <laughs> to everybody else. But the hardest thing is uh, learning to live with a different level of functionality uh, in, a, in a very real sense, I'm, I am, I've got a permanent disability now and, uh, I can still walk and all of that, which is wonderful. But when you, when somebody has taken out two thirds of your mouth, your tongue, you can't eat or talk or drink or, you know, you can't function the same. So it creates a very real disability. And so I'm finding that this next phase of my journey is in part, uh, some heavy grieving over what's been lost and yet still pushing myself to not get stuck in that grief and move forward. And that's, a, you know, for many people who have gone through some kind of major loss, that's a very hard place to be, a very precarious place to be. Well, and not only precarious, but uncertain because it's uncertain because fear can sometimes creep in and invade that place of acceptance. You know, as we grieve, there's a lot of fear in grieving, don't you think? Because it's the unknown. Yeah, well, grief is very painful and it's very scary because it brings up doubts and questions about our existence and about, uh, you know, pain loves to convince us that it will never end. And so grief, there's this, this fear that what if I never get through this? What if I never move past the grief? What if I feel this pain and loss and this intensity forever? And that's a terrifying thing. Mm. Ask anybody, ask a mom who's lost her child or a husband who lost his wife for 40 years or, or I mean, we could go on and on. And that grief is so intense and so profound and so deep. I mean, it goes to the bones where you physically feel pain from the grief and sadness you're wrestling with. And the fear is, is what if, what if this never goes away? What if I feel this in this kind of agony forever? And that's a terrifying, terrifying place. It's been said that pain can bring a unique perspective to life. And I know that, you know, your life hasn't been without pain. You've had adversity. You know, we just talked about it. But this last six months, this last four months, how has your pain been different than previous times in your life? How has it been more physical, maybe more chronic? And how has that changed your view of God? Hmm. Oh, goodness. Well, the last, ever since the initial ulcer that appeared on my tongue several years ago, you know, six years ago, uh, I started having regular pain, physical pain. So when I went through my divorce, or, you know, you could even go back to childhood when we don't get what we want, you know, when, when we get sick to our room, whatever, we have sadness and pain, um, but it's more situational or experiential pain. 
But the, my first real contact with uh, chronic pain started about six years ago with this ulcer that began in my mouth. And with each surgery, I went through physical pain, but then I would have some healing that would bring me a little bit of relief before mm -hmm. the pain would come back again. In the last eight months, uh, between the surgery and all of the treatment and radiation, I was launched into a place of intense physical pain that I have never before experienced. And I've gone through hard things. I've gone through the loss of my marriage and single parenting and struggling teenagers and all kinds of, you know, life pain. But nothing, uh, I, I came to really believe that nothing could prepare me or help me to really comprehend uh, the damage that physical pain does to a person's emotions and, and spiritual sense of God and uh, an okayness with themselves. I mean, physical pain is the most isolating, lonely, uh, demoralizing uh, experience I've ever had. And the, the hard thing about physical pain is you can't, especially chronic physical pain, you can't do anything to relieve it. So, you know, if I was sad, I could go at least give myself a hot fudge Sunday and have a moment of pleasure, even if it's <laughs> my sadness, right? Right. <laughs> or I could pour myself a cup of coffee and read a book. So even if I'm sad, I mean, the sadness is pervasive, but I can find things to do that may bring a, a, an element of pleasure to even my sadness. But physical pain, there is not that kind of physical pain. It's inescapable. Uh, and it robs you of all joy and pleasure and even a sense of hope. So you end up being in a very hopeless place. So one, you know, one unexpected gift from the last eight months is I have a, a profound sense of respect and um, empathy for those that deal with intense chronic pain because mm -hmm. it is no picnic. It is a very tough, hard place to be. So difficult and challenging. And I imagine it's a place that really no one can even touch, not even our spouse. You know? Exactly. Exactly. That's what makes it so lonely is you can describe to somebody the pain, but because they don't feel it, they really have no ability to connect with you in your pain. They can sit next to you while you're going through pain, which brings a certain level of comfort. But when your pain is that intense, it's so lonely and so isolating uh, that even your spouse sitting next to you feels far away. I imagine, it, I spent a lot of time while I was on the couch. I mean, some days I was writhing in pain. And I was on massive pain mm -hmm. meds too. I spent a lot of time while I was laying there thinking about Christ on the cross, believe it or not. Because uh, I thought of how the night before he was arrested in the garden, how he he knew what was coming and how he grieved and felt that same sense of significant agony as he prepared for the physical pain that was to come. And then I think about just the road to the cross and what that looked like and what he went through um, with the crucifixion and the horrific pain and how how isolating, you know, even when you read his words and read the story, you can see the loneliness that he felt on the cross. And, uh, and some of that was because of what he was doing by carrying our sin on the cross, but some of it was the physical pain. Yes. Incredible. And yet comforting, I'm guessing, in the fact that he is a savior who is acquainted with the most severe suffering possible. 
Absolutely. And, you know, when you're in pain, it's, it's hard to find many things that give you comfort. But I have a very good friend who has been dealing with a pancreatic cancer for 12 years. It's so uncommon for somebody to mm. live with pancreatic cancer for that long. And she's really a walking miracle, although it's so significant. Her journey is so severe right now that she's in daily pain. I mean, she's in awful pain every day, something you and I can't even comprehend. And uh, and she tells me again and again that she literally pictures herself curling up at the foot of the cross and wrapping herself around Jesus' feet because it's the only place that she finds any measure of comfort because he gets it. It reminds me of that scripture in Galatians where it says, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. You know, he loved mm-hmm. us and gave himself for us. And and yet, um, I just can't imagine the prison that it feels like being in chronic pain. And I know so many, as a nurse, I know so many deal with it because we've even had in-services. You know, f- pain is considered the fifth vital sign. Mm-hmm. And in all of our documentation and all of our treatment and care of people, especially in acute hospital settings, pain is right next to blood pressure, pulse, temperature, breathing, you know, and everyone has a right to pain relief and pain management. And they have specialists who just handle the treatments for chronic pain. And it's, it's devastating the numbers of people who are dealing with chronic pain. I'm wondering if you and your experience with with what you've just endured and, and continue to endure sometimes in and out, depending on the day, mm-hmm. is there, is there something that you found to tangibly help other than, you know, pondering the uh, suffering of our savior and how he is with us and never forsakes us. Is there a- another thing, anything that might help somebody out there today who's facing that? Well, another of the greatest comforts for me was someone who understood uh, that pain element and was willing to just stay close to me through it. So like my friend, you know, who has been surviving pancreatic cancer for 12 years, she would text me every single day, multiple times a day, even from her bed. You know, she's in bed in pain herself. But because she understood it uh, and she was willing to sacrifice her own rest, to just be present and near to me while I was going through my own pain, which I know for a fact it came at great sacrifice to her, but there is such a comfort in having an actual living, breathing human being who at least understands to some extent what you're going through and says, I'm going to stick next to you and we're going to go through this together. I think more than ever before, I'm convinced that uh, that. Part of the gift of our sufferings is that we're given an opportunity to walk with somebody else, which not only gives to them, but it helps redeem some of our own pain. And, you know, we've read about this in the Bible and books and everything about how we're created for community. But although we're so connected in our culture, we don't do very well truly walking with people through pain and suffering. And that was probably... You know, aside from my spiritual connection with God and really leaning on Him, having those tangible people that would sit with me in my pain at least ease some of the terror of being alone through it. And yet, it 
it's a cost to sit with someone in their suffering. It brings up our own insecurities and our own questions and our own suffering. And it's a unique person, I think, who would choose to be self-sacrificial in that way and sit with another. And I think Mm -hmm. suffering does cultivate in each of us that empathy and ability and compassion to do just that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just how just the amount of empathy I now for people I now feel for people going through treatment, recovery, pain, what or any kind of loss or grief. Uh, you know, even though I w- I would never want to go through this again, it makes it something that is irreplaceable. You know, this has given me a, a certain life experience that gives me kind of an inside look at at what my fellow friends and neighbors and coworkers and people have endured at different times. It takes me to a whole different level of relationship and compassion because of the suffering endured. And as long as, you know, as long as you and I choose not to just be victims of our circumstance, I mean, that's where the rub is. It's, you know, the pain is so great sometimes we can easily slip into feeling sorry for ourselves and becoming victims of it. Or somehow we can push through and walk with other people through their pain and suffering. And that ends up being part of our healing. Absolutely. And you, Michelle, did just that with your daddy. And I wonder if you'd share with us a little bit of what that was like to walk through together with your dad through this journey of what is cancer and all that that meant for you. Mm. So, uh, I mentioned that last February 2014, I got my second diagnosis. But if you back up a little bit further to fall 2013, uh, my dad had, uh, his skin had started turning yellow, (laughs) which sounds kind of comical. But obviously, when you notice that somebody's skin isn't the right color, like, okay, we probably need to go to the doctor. So we went and saw his doctor. Uh, I had just been with him uh, two weeks before and we had gone to Disneyland together and spent a a vacation together and he was fine. I mean, he was in great health, doing well, but that skin color was odd. And so he went to the doctor and the doctor thought that he had a blocked bile duct or, or maybe hepatitis or something like that. And, uh, it turned out to be the blocked bile duct because of tumors. And uh, that's when my dad found out that he had pancreatic cancer. Now, being a former nurse myself, I knew, you know, when it comes to cancer, pancreatic cancer is kind of like the top of the list. It's the most scary, uh, uh, most difficult to treat. And yet my, my dad's doctor had said that they had caught it very early. So we were very hopeful and optimistic. He flew to Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York City, went through a massive surgery called the Whipple Procedure, then after that went through chemo and radiation. And so at that point, I had only gone through one cancer diagnosis, but I thought how wonderful it was that I had at least gone through the journey. And so I could, I knew how to walk with him through some of those scary days and the unknown days and the waiting for test results and all of that. And so it created an interesting bond with us as we went through that process. And, you know, there's nothing more powerful than when you as a daughter get to speak spiritual truth and life and back to your parents and share that with them. It was just an amazing, amazing process, even though it was a hard time. 
And then just as my dad was finishing up his treatment is when I found out that cancer had come back for the second time for me. And we didn't expect that at all. So here my dad is, what we believe, he's cancer-free. And we think, all right, we've got two cancer-free people in our family. <laughs> and just about that time is when I found that additional tumor and found out the cancer was back. So then we switched seats, and he became the cheerleader, cheering for me as I was going through surgery again. So then when I came through that, we had about eight weeks where I was recovering from my surgery and the second cancer diagnosis. My dad was recovering from treatment. And here in our minds, there's nothing but life ahead for us. And we are so thankful. And then May of 2014, just you know, two, three months after my ordeal, my dad found out that the cancer was back and it was terminal. And so at that point, the doctors gave him uh, 10 months to two years. Uh, what we didn't know at the time, it was that that was far too optimistic. He ended up being with us only three more months at that point. Oh, so hard. It's hard to even say it because I'm sorry. Such a big, I mean, such a massive blow in the middle of so many blows, right? So you many. You start to wonder, really, how much more should one person have to take? And so when you hear the word terminal, you start having. Uh, you start having some serious conversations with those you love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked to friends who have lost loved ones in car accidents or aneurysms or sudden strokes. And, uh, and their biggest frustration or grief or loss is not being able to have that one last conversation. And what I can say, the gift of cancer for us was the fact that it's made us so aware of the fragility of life that we... We had the hard conversations. We had the loving conversations, the forgiveness conversations, all those things. Uh, There was nothing left undone, no loose ends. And so for the last three months of my dad's life, we we shared on a, um, a profoundly deep and intimate level about what faith means in this kind of place when you know you're not going to be around much longer and what God what God means to you in those moments and how uh, if you haven't built up your faith before that, it's not going to be strong enough to weather that. And so for my dad and I, you know, God had done so much work in us over so many years before that moment that when we get to this place where we wrestle with life and death, God said, you know, I've prepared you for even this, even this. And so we had some pretty amazing conversations over the phone and in person about life and faith and what matters and what doesn't matter uh, and conversations I'll never forget because of what cancer afforded us during those last days. I'm just speechless at the gift that that must have been and and yet overwhelmed by the profound loss that you experienced. I mean, it was... It's one of those things that was so, it's like seared in my mind those last weeks, especially with him, so hard and so incredibly sacred and sweet Mm -hmm. and profound. Uh, I will always be thankful for those weeks that we had because they, they gave me an entirely new perspective of life, but also gave us such a sweetness of relationship that is irreplaceable. And it seems like the lesson that cancer has given has gone on in teaching you how to live and be thankful for what you do have 
instead of wishing for what you don't have. And, you know, you, you write in your book, Undone, a story of making peace with an unexpected life. You write this quote from Charles Swindoll and says, character is not born of stillness. It requires the hammer's blow of affliction. And Michelle, so many hammers, so many blows, (laughs) you know, I mean, the character, didn't you just, don't you just feel like, Lord, I get it. You know, like I'm with you and I'm not leaving and you're not leaving me and let's just do this. Let's be done with the blows, you know? Exactly. I have many things like that where I just, I'm like, okay, uncle, enough. I've had enough. I can't do anymore. Uh, I do have days that I feel very beat up by all of this. I mean, it's a lot to take in a very short amount of time. Uh, And I, you know, we haven't even talked about just the normal daily challenges of kids and life and school. I mean, these are just the major blows. And So there are days that I want to curl up and just feel sorry for myself, frankly. And there are days I give myself permission to do that for a short period of time. Uh, But at some point, I, you know, I either can choose to live or I can choose to have a living death. I mean, to sit around and mourn what's happened isn't going to change the circumstances. There's nothing I can do. So my only option, really, if I want to be free and if I want to have any hope of a new life is to keep my eyes on the one who knows far more than I do and and trust the fact that as much as I don't understand the whys of what's happening, uh, that he will make sure that none of it is wasted, uh, both in my own character development, but hopefully then in how I love and care for other people as well. And we may never know the process of what he's doing in and through us, but trusting that he's good even when he doesn't feel good. It sounds so cliche, but I feel like that's what your message is as it comes full circle from that first crisis of faith to even today. It really is a choice, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the more that I honestly share my story and, you know, try to be as vulnerable and authentic about it as possible— the more that I hear from other people and their hard stories, I, I can't even tell you the number of emails and messages I have re- received from people uh, in their own undone story. And and so mine has cancer and three additional kids from trauma in it, things like that. But I hear stories from people all over the world that are going through horrific circumstances that have nothing to do with cancer, but we're all in this undone place. And one thing that's really taught me is that suffering is not unique to me. I'm not the only one going through pain and suffering. There is a wide, vast world of people out there that are enduring their own hard, painful stories. Yes. And if we continue to live isolated, it's going to be all the harder for each of us to endure. But if somehow we can start telling each other the truth and walking through this together and all of us clinging to the hope of Christ in the middle of it, then we have a shot of having uh, a full, abundant life, even in the middle of our hard stories. And that's what the hope is. I, you know, I believe that's what Jesus gave up the perfection of heaven to come out down and wear very human, painful skin was for that purpose, for us to see that we don't have have to be alone, which is why he was called Emmanuel, God with us, because we're meant to do life with one another, with him. Yes, which is why Paul said, 
I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And um, that's what we're living for. That's who we're growing toward in and through our suffering. And he promises not to leave us or forsake us. He promises to grow our character and mature us. Um, And it's a journey and a trusting one that we have to choose to say yes to. And I see in you, you have done just that. And not only have done it, but you've written it down for us in your (laughs) memoir called Undone. And I think for anyone listening who is having a hard time with something unexpected in their life. I mean, who of us doesn't have something unexpected? I think it just hits everyone. And I just would love for you in closing to just share a little bit about the experience of writing this book, because this didn't come without a cost. I'm guessing it didn't. Uh, Anytime, I mean, I've chosen to write things that are vulnerable and embarrassing and transparent, and it's not an easy journey, Michelle. (laughs) And so could you share with us a little bit about the book, Um, maybe some behind the scenes of how it came about or what it was like going through it, reliving these stories, being willing to share in the hope that it would encourage someone out there who does have a story of their own to go out on a limb in that next conversation where that door opens and they could choose to say something or they could choose not to, for them to be encouraged to step out off the cliff and just say yes to sharing their story. Yes, this, uh, this book, it, I knew when I took on this project of writing this book that I either needed to go big or go home. In other words, I couldn't, <laughs> talk, I couldn't talk about the undone life and, and keep my cards close to my chest. Yeah. It, would, it would dishonor the reader. It would dishonor the story. And it would, it would put the focus on, on me trying to be perfect and, and nice and plastic versus on a God who redeems the broken things. And so I knew that I had to be willing to... Uh, expose the deep, dark, hard things, the, uh, the unfinished places, the loose ends in myself and my, even my own character and family, all of that in order to do justice to the story. But boy, for a type A perfectionist, that's very hard to do. Cause I would much rather y'all think I'm perfect than <laughs> all, <laughs> all the raw open places. And yet over the years, as I've gone through one blow after another blow, I've also come to realize how much stinking work it is to try to appear perfect all the time. Yes. It is so much work and it requires so much energy. And behind our attempts, because all of us do this to some extent, we we have our, our online personas that we try to portray to everybody that appears like our, our family is much more happy and put together than they really are. And that we are always patient and kind and say kind words to everybody that we live with. And, and everything's always a, a devotional and a prayer and everything. And that's just not even real. And we work so hard to put on this persona because behind it, we don't think we're lovable and worthy enough otherwise. Mm-hmm. And to me, that tells me that I haven't fully grasped the grace of God yet. I'm really not living in a place of grace. Because when I understand that God's love covers all of that, his grace covers all of that. I can live as a forgiven woman, still imperfect, but I don't have to pretend because it's really not about my performance. It's about him. So, you know, for those that are so afraid to put it out there, you know, my first suggestion is 
I would do some serious wrestling in, in your own private house, bedroom, wherever, where you really wrestle with why you feel a need to hide. Yes. And as, as you wrestle with that and really try to figure out what it is you're afraid of, um, just start back at the basics and once again come face to face with the fact that there is nothing you and I can bring to the table that makes us worthy other than the fact that we are loved by a God who gave everything for us. That's what makes us enough. Uh, no matter how perfect we try to be, we're going to fail, period. There's really no, there's nothing we can do to fix that. So wrestle with that. Come to a place of true freedom and knowing that um, we are flawed, messed up people, but boy, we have a God that loves us enough to uh, to cover over all of that through his son, Jesus. And that's what makes a difference. And then the second thing is, is the second step, as you wrestle through that personally and you work through that personally, then you can start to um, connect with others and and here's the deal. This is the short of it. Your, your perfection does absolutely nothing to create connections with other flawed, um, vulnerable, hurting people. That's right. Bringing your perfection does nothing to connect with them. Because I don't want to be around you if you're perfect, because then that makes me feel <laughs> terrible. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody wants to be around that. But if you come as a in-progress person covered by the grace of God, you have everything to offer. I mean, ultimately, we like to say it's not about us, but we're very much making it about us. Mm-hmm. And the more that you and I can really wrestle through our own predisposition to make it about us and our offerings and our perfection and really understand that the best thing we have to offer is Christ and that's it. Uh, the more peace and freedom we will be to be our flawed and perfect selves because it's not about us. It's about pointing to somebody else. That's right. To pointing to what God is doing in and through us. And it's only because of him. And we are pre-approved. I love how you how you highlighted that and brought that out, because that really is the place from which we can dare to share. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the most powerful story, isn't it? The impossible ones, the people that are the biggest mess that God does something amazing with. I mean, that's what's so incredible. So for the person listening that feels like they are far too messed up and far too broken and far too outside the reach of God's hand, that is God's favorite kind of story. Mm -hmm. Because then he, I mean, it's all about him being able to do what only he can do. Right. And it makes us really drawn and magnetized to that person because we know they're not perfect. They've been through hard things. It helps us see ourselves in their story. And we feel this bond of trust, which can lead to that healing that we all long for together. So absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Michelle, I'm just so thankful that you joined me today and that you um, have dared to write your story. And I hope that everybody goes out and gets it. And I think they should actually get the audio version because it's just (laughs) marvelous to hear you read it. But that's just my biased opinion. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering before you go, if you can share with us where they can find you online and then just a little glimpse of what's ahead for you. Because before this last fall, this last diagnosis and radical surgery and being taken to the brink, you were really experiencing some fantastic opportunities in your career. And 
You know, is there an update, a glimpse of what's ahead, what you're working on, where we'll be able to look forward to finding you in the future? Okay. Yeah, I'm starting starting in September. I'm going to start doing speaking engagements again. Uh, you know, my speech is still in progress, but I'm determined to uh, I'm determined to not wait for everything to be perfect. I mean, I'm going to speak right from this place because I think that's where we all live. So, I have several speaking engagements coming up this fall and in 2016, um, all over the United States and actually internationally. I'll be in South Africa in May. Uh, and going multiple different places. I'm very limited in the speaking engagements that I'm doing just to preserve my health, but um, I have several already lined up and um, am doing those. And you know, the best way for people to keep up to date with me on, on is online on my website because uh, you know the story continues to unfold and and uh, and I know so many people have asked for updates on what's going on. So the best way to connect is at my website which is michellecouchat.com. It's M-I-C-H-E-L-E-C-U-S-H-A-T-T.com. And that's where I blog and post regular updates. And you can even find out more about my speaking engagements, things like that right there. I love it. And I love following you on Instagram. I love your pictures. Actually, yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things because you, you really get a glimpse of real life, I think. It is. And, and I love how you can connect and leave comments and you don't get 20 gazillion emails from the comment you left. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so true. It's, I mean, just on a practical side note. But uh, yeah. uh, well, I'm I really sincerely from the bottom of my heart and am so thankful for your friendship, albeit an online one. But I feel like if I lived close by, I'd be tracking you down and walking my three mile route with you each day well, and I would love that. dragging you out and, and definitely sipping chai tea lattes with you because yes. I have a serious Starbucks problem. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> yeah, I don't have much taste left, but I can still taste my chai tea. Awesome. Well, Michelle, we we will commit to praying for you and your family and cheering you on and look forward to um, what God is going to continue to do in and through you. So, so fun to talk to you today. Such a pleasure, Jackie. Thanks for doing life with me over the last few months. Absolutely. All right. Have an amazing day. You too. Bye-bye. I so enjoyed my conversation with Michelle. And again, if you want to get the show notes for this episode, all you have to do is text the words episode 52 with no spaces to the number 33444 and follow the directions that are texted to you. And that will be emailed to you completely free. And I hope it blesses you. Also, don't forget all the show notes and links to Michelle's book and anything else that was mentioned in this episode, you can find on the show notes page, JackieWatkins.com forward slash episode 52. And also the Mud Stories app is completely free if you want to download that from wherever you download your apps. There's an Apple app and an Android app for you, again, completely free. You can also get an audiobook completely free today, and I would recommend Michelle's book, Undone. If you uh, are interested in hearing her read it, I thoroughly enjoyed it, just like I shared. And so all you have to do is go to mudstoriesbook.com and sign up for a free 30-day trial, which you can cancel at any time at no cost to you, and you get to keep the free audiobook. And Michelle's book is there. It's entitled Undone, A Story of Making Peace with an Unexpected Life. So if that appeals to you, you can start listening to it today, mudstoriesbook.com. 
I'm so thankful that all of you listen in each and every week, and I hope that if you've missed some of the previous episodes of this past year, that you would, you know, download some of those, check them out on my website or on iTunes, and I would be so blessed if you would consider subscribing to this show in iTunes and also leaving a rating or review. Both of those things would allow more people to find mud stories and be encouraged, and that's my heart. That's my passion. I think we all face mud. And I would hate for someone to feel alone that doesn't have to feel alone. And so if you could help me spread the word, maybe text a friend, email a friend, forward this episode to a friend, I would so greatly appreciate it. And so today, no matter what you're facing, no matter where you've been or what lies ahead, may you find a grateful song to sing. Have a beautiful day. Never in Baba feels a press upon my mind I pull a shame that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. I never any mother fails to press upon my That leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul As you lift me out You wash me off with your sweet grace And you lead me to a safer place You overwhelm my broken thoughts And you mend my lost and damaged heart I find myself where I belong In your safe embrace There's a grateful song to sing grateful song to sing, a grateful song.